You are listening to the Dental Practice Owners Podcast, brought to you by Prosperident. From our unique perspective as dentistry's embezzlement experts, Prosperident's team can bring you the information that is important to practice owners. The Dental Practice Owners Podcast brings you strategies, tools, and tips that you can use and dentistry's thought leaders as guests. So sit back, relax, and listen to Prosperidence Amber Weber, Wendy Askins, and David Harris talk about the issues that matter to you. We're excited that everybody who's joined us on a regular basis, we're back live, and we wanted to have a special edition of our Prosperidence Power Hour. You ask, we answer. So we wanted everybody who's attended and people out in the dental world to submit their questions to us so that we could take the time to go over some important uh, facts with you, our special audience. Back to you, Dave. I wanted to start tonight by just uh, kind of reintroducing us because it's been it's been a while since uh, since we told you about who we are. And we just kind of assume sometimes that everybody knows. Um, I'm David Harris. I'm the CEO of Prosperident. I've been investigating dental embezzlement now for 31 years and in a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm a CPA, but please don't hold that against me. I'm also a certified fraud examiner and and, uh, what's called certified in financial forensics. Um, My my two co-hosts, who I think of privately as the Texas Tornadoes, because they both live in Texas, um, I I should introduce. And um, I'll, I'll start with Amber Weber. Um, Amber um, spent uh, years as a, as a dental hygienist and then moved into office management and then consulting and then uh, has been with us since 2018. Um, we have three levels of examiner here, which are called fraud examiner, senior fraud examiner, and supervising examiner. So Amber was promoted. Actually, we, we, we did it here on one of these episodes uh, to, to senior examiner. She's, she's our newest senior, but uh, has, has uh, a whole lot of background. Anyway, she's, uh, she's a terrific gal. The other thing I'll mention is that this whole webinar series was Amber's idea. Uh, and she came to me with it and said, well, you know, people have all this downtime because of COVID and we should do a webinar. And um, my response was basically, you know, I don't know if anybody would be interested in that. And anyway, we did it anyway. We, we've, we've had uh, over 3,500 people tune into our webinars. And uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely Amber's, Amber's brainchild. Uh, so that's, that's co-host number one. Uh, co-host number two is Wendy Askins. Um, Wendy is one of our longest serving embe- embezzlement investigators. She started with us, actually, I had to look it up today, in 2012. So uh, eight, eight plus years for Wendy. Uh, Wendy is one of three people who hold the title here of supervising examiner. So they are our most senior examiners and, and, and tackle uh, some of the really ugly files. Um, Wendy also heads our orthodontic investigation department and she, uh, she has a very deep background in orthodontics and um, really um, you know, understands that business like nobody. Um, tonight we get to have a little surprise for Wendy. Um, because uh, we're going to present her with something tonight. Um, we what, One of the things that we recognize at Prosperity is milestones for when people have uncovered a certain amount of embezzlement. And it's my great honor tonight to present Wendy with her $2 million pin. Um, it's, a, it's a gold pin with the Prosperity logo. Can I reach through the screen and grab it? <laughs> well, yeah. 
You can. Oh, wow, thank you. Here's, here's the actual pin. It comes oh. in a box. But, you know, I, was, I was worried, Wendy, that if I opened the box, people would think I was going to propose to you or something. So, um, and, and I have a wife and she has a husband. So um, <laughs> let's, let's just take that off the table now. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a tremendous honor to recognize Wendy's achievement in, in uncovering the $2 million of embezzlement. And what, what I have to tell the audience, Wendy, that they probably uh, wouldn't know otherwise is that um, the actual embezzlement in those cases was much, much, much higher than that. And all we're counting is what, what Wendy counted in each case before she stopped. And when you're investigating embezzlement, there's always a point where it just doesn't make sense to keep looking anymore. And that, that happens actually fairly early in most investigations. And we're going to talk about dental and about insurance coverage for this in a little while. And, and I think the audience will see exactly what I mean, but you know, that's, that's the tip of a much bigger iceberg. Um, anyway, congratulations, Wendy. And uh, it's, it's truly an honor to be working with you. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, I'm Wendy Askins. Again, thank you so much, Dave. That, that means so much to me. I'm going to try to compose myself. If you know me um, in person, you know, I'm a crier. So um, anyway, so today's webinar, you ask and we answer. Um, our webinar is going to be a little bit longer this evening because we really want to spend time answering your questions in detail. Now, so if, if this is your first webinar and you're not aware, what we did was we sent a charge out over social media and in the past webinar that we did last month asking, what would you like us to talk about more? What do you want to hear more about? And so lots of people sent in questions and we picked the top 14 to 15 questions. So we're going to be answering those for you today. And we're also going to be um, answering some live questions at the end. So if you think of anything during um, the session, please, don't hesitate to, to chat it out to us and we'll be able to answer that for you as well. So, like I said before, we get a lot of questions um, as embezzlement becomes more of a topic of conversation. And honestly, as people are becoming more comfortable in talking about it, even our clients are becoming more comfortable in um, giving their testimonies or telling about their experience, as you saw with some of the individuals in the beginning before we started the webinar. What we're finding are people just have a whole lot of questions. And during this webinar, we're not able to answer all of them because we get barraged by questions. So we either end up missing them, giving a slight overview of the answer, or we have to return um, the answer in an email. So this is a wonderful opportunity that we're taking tonight. We're gonna slow down. And we're going to be detailed about the top 14 to 15 questions that were sent into us by your colleagues. Take it away, Amber. All right. So our first question is a question that we get asked many times, sometimes before we complete an investigation, sometimes if we're not even completing an investigation. And it is um, easy. I'm going to fire this employee anyway. I also think they might be embezzling. Do I need to wait until after Prosperident finishes? So we did a webinar on this that you can reference to uh, called Breaking Up is Hard to Do. But the simple answer is no. You do not have to have proof or catch someone red-handed to terminate their employment with you. There are some things you need to be aware of, though, that if you're in an at-will state that allows you to terminate an employee, 
you need to make sure you have reference and there's not legal ramifications such as unemployment, discrimination. But the main thing to remember here is terminating an employee should not make reference to possible embezzlement. So in the past, we've discussed that this, that you need to have documentation and policies and procedures in place that gives you a good foundation for terming that, terminating that employee and gives you good reasoning that allows you to terminate them for other, for other causes. We also have a termination checklist available for you. So definitely visit our website or email us or contact us and we can give you some uh, reference for that. But the short answer is no, you do not have to have proof of embezzlement to let someone go that you are, are willing to let anyone go. Uh, Wendy, would you like to add, or Dave, would you like to add to that question? Um, I wouldn't mind. Um, the thing I tell people about this a lot, Amber, is that stealing is against the law, even if somebody never worked for you. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes people think like if, if we're investigating that somehow they're going to make our job harder if they let that person go before we get to the end. And it, in, in what we do, it really doesn't matter whether right. you fire some, whether somebody's still working there when we're investigating or not. So if you're unhappy with them anyway, you know, even if it turned out that they weren't stealing, if they'd still get fired, then just do what Amber said. I mean, do it properly, but but uh, there's no need to wait for us. And, and I would like to add to that on the story of a case that I recently finished up. Um, the employee was uh, terminated just a few weeks before uh, we got the information. And through conversations with uh, the client, there's been a pattern change since the employee's been gone. So, you know, with new policies and procedures, now the, uh, the doctor can see the pattern that she had to complete what she had, do had done. Yeah, good point. Hey, can I jump into that real quick? Um, I'm sorry, Amber, I was answering a question um, when you were talking about that. But one thing that I've seen with some of my clients is that they um, they get ready to fire someone because they have a suspicion that that person is embezzling, but they don't have proof yet. And when they separate with that employee, they'll say something like, well, I suspect you're stealing from me or well, we got some cash missing. I would like to urge our watchers to be extremely careful when you do that. Um, if you're going to fire someone specifically for embezzlement, you better have proof of it. Um, that's why Prosperident has a specific system that you follow and information that we give out. Just watch what you say when you're separating from an employee. Yeah, good advice. Yeah. All right, question two. What can you do if you suspect embezzlement from somebody who's not with you anymore? Is there a statute of limitations? Uh, that, that, that's a great question. The first thing I'll say is absolutely we can investigate. Um, personally, I've had to do at least one investigation where I was going back eight years. Um, Amber and Wendy both know this, but once you start looking more than three years in the past, it gets increasingly challenging. You know, some of the records that you need to investigate may not be available anymore. And people's memories are fallible. You know, if you ask somebody, when you were in the dental practice four months ago, do you happen to remember how you paid? Most people could probably answer that question. When you ask somebody, okay, when you were in the dental practice in, on July 2nd, 2015, do you remember how you paid? People aren't going to remember. So it gets more challenging the further back you have to reach, but it can be done. Um, in terms of limitation periods, there are three conceivably that you might have to deal with. The first one is insurance. In other words, how uh, 
Um, in every insurance contract, there's a there's a requirement for you to submit a claim within a certain period of time. And in terms of making a claim against your insurance, and we're going to talk more about insurance coverage that we have for embezzlement later, but in terms of making a claim, you have to follow the contract language and the policy. If you're convicting somebody, if, if your intent is to have somebody convicted criminally, again, there are limitation periods and, and these are set state by state or if you're in Canada by the, by the national rules. And if you're suing somebody, again, there's a limitation to when you can do that. Now, having said that, there's this concept called the discovery rule. And what the discovery rule says is the limitation period starts when you become aware of the issue. So let's say, for example, that you're hit by a car. Um, typically, when you're hit by a car, you know you were hit. So the clock starts ticking at that moment. And in a lot of places, you have, for example, three years to bring a lawsuit after you were hit by the car. What the limitation periods are designed to do is provide a limit to the period when you could take action and you chose not to. With embezzlement, it's a little bit different. The discovery might happen years after the crime was committed. So you may have been embezzled um, by somebody who left you in 2019 and you found out about it yesterday. Well, in that case, the clock starts yesterday, not in 2019. So the, the door never closes here simply because you were unaware that it happened. It's once you have awareness, that's when, that's when your time to act becomes limited. Um, in most states, the criminal statute of limitations is somewhere between three and six years. And in most places, the civil limitation is usually six years, again, from discovery. The, the one other thing I'll mention about embezzlement um, that's, that's different than um, other types of crime is that most, most crime is a single act. Um, you know, if you get burglarized, somebody comes into your house and they take all your stuff and they're gone within 20 minutes. Embezzlement is a lot more like a dripping faucet than it is like a flash flood. And people will um, commit embezzlement, you know, on average undetected over about two years, but it, it could stretch to five or six or ten. Um, on a continuing offense, if the most recent activity is within the limitation period, then every other activity is as well. So somebody starts embezzling from you in 2002 and you fire them in 2018 and you discover it in 2020. Uh, as long as you act within the statutory limitation period from discovery in 2020, you can go right back to 2002. In other words, it's not like part of what somebody did is within the limitation period and part of it is outside it. That's not how it works. If the most recent act is within the limitation period, then, then you, can, you can go back to the beginning. So it, it's not totally straightforward, but this is not the big obstacle with people doing things that they sometimes think it is. So question number three, what kind of practices external IT advisors do to help protect the owner against embezzlement? So the first key word here we're going to talk about is backup. And what I want to tell everybody listening is your data is like the backbone. It's like the engine of your practice. Everything that we have going on now is all um, computer-based. Everything is through technology. So think of it as the engine of your practice. So you have to regularly get your oil changed in your engine, and you have to have a professional mechanic 
help you do things to keep that engine running and make it last a long time. And so you don't lose the power and, and uh, the usability of that engine. So the number one thing is when you talk about IT, this is not a DIY do-it-yourself job. One main thing we talk about is you definitely want to have a backup system, but also have a secondary offsite backup system. So that if that engine in your practice, that data in your computer or your physical hard drive is compromised, you still have something to back up the data and you haven't lost, uh, lost it. The main thing about this, you want that professional advisor to, and you to be aware that it was carefully thought out and that it's protected and compliant. So once again, a lot of a lot of practice owners think that they can complete this on their own, but you really need a professional advisor helping you with this. The other thing we recommend is do an occasional sweep uh, to make sure that everything has been installed and is not installed without uh, authorization. Nowadays, with a lot of uh, people working from home, you know, if you're going to allow remote access, you need to make sure that it's carefully thought out. Uh, there's so many different uh, ways to remote access into different systems, and that's why you need that IT professional to make sure that what you're allowing to access that engine, that data of your practice is well thought out and it's been authorized so that you make, make sure that somebody without your knowledge didn't install access that you did not want them to have. The, you know, the third thing that we're seeing now is uh, spam and malware. There's so many ways that people can access your data without your knowledge, and I want you to think of it this way. This is kind of like a bank, a silent bank robbery in your practice. If malware gets installed on your computer and people can steal and access your data and, and you don't have a way to put a stop for it, they don't have to have a gun or a getaway car to complete this. So definitely you want to have an IT um, department that's making sure you don't have things going into your system that's allowing people who shouldn't have access to that data to install maps, malware, and have spam popping up that can, can compromise that good engine of your practice, your data and your uh, computer system. Do you have anything that you would like to add to that topic, Dave? Oh, um, no? maybe one thing, and, and we'll just talk about the impact that COVID had. I mean, if you asked me a year ago, who should have remote access to my practice management software? My answer would be practice owners only, no staff. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure that's realistic right now where more people are working from home and, you know, that, that I think remote access for some of your staff, you know, if somebody's doing recall phone calls for you, for example, and booking hygiene appointments, there's really no particular reason they need to do that from your office. So I think we have to, we have to adapt a little bit and say, you know, there was a time when we just said remote access to staff is a bad idea. Um, I guess what I'd say now is, it has to be judicious. In other words, not every front desk person who normally works from in the office needs remote access. So we, we still need to control it a lot. Definitely. Number four, what systems should be in place to avoid or eliminate staff from embezzling cash? This is how popular this question is. We've already had two people ask about cash um, right as the webinar began. I'll read one from Carrie who says, how do you feel about accepting cash? We have a few patients who always pay in cash. Since COVID-19, we use that opportunity to discontinue accepting cash. Now we are getting backlash. Any advice? 
Um, well, I'm right there with you, Carrie. Um, you know, I've been in, in dentistry in some form for about 30 years and I'm, I'm very, very patient convenience centered and it's hard for me, um, to say, you know, Hey, just don't take cash anymore. There are some areas and some specialties in which that can be handled and that is appropriate. Um, Specialty-wise, I'm talking about orthodontics, for example, where they have the monthly payments and you set them up on an auto monthly so you don't take cash. It's auto monthly payments. Um, But to be honest with you, there are just some areas or some rural areas in which, depending on the demographics of that area, you have to take cash. So I would recommend try to cut it down as much as possible. And if you can't, then we have some other guidelines for you to follow as well. Um, And also another thing about that is um, I've heard a few consultants come up with some very um, calming and creative verbiage um, and some different solutions like, you know, asking the patient, um, you know, to maybe just mail in a check or something like that if they can. I don't know. Anyway, you can check with whatever consultant that you're working with that's really good with words because I'm really not. Locked cash drawer. I'm always amazed how we take cash and checks and insurance checks and all of the money from our office that we receive and we just stick it in a drawer beside the person who's posting those payments into the computer system. Actually, the very first orthodontic office that I ever worked in, fresh out of college, um, the receptionist was busy at the end of the day doing the day sheet and adding everything up. And she got, she finished everything. Of course, we still had patients in the office. She was getting everything all gathered up and someone came and asked a question and she got up from the front desk and walked away from it. Now, we had patients going floating in and out in front of her desk. So guess what happened when she came back? The entire deposit was gone. So we're not just talking about embezzlement from within your office. We're talking about your patients, too. Um, We're also talking about, you know, some some people leave leave money in their drawers overnight. And what a cleaning person could come in there. Anybody could come in and take that money out. So we recommend that the funds that you keep, especially cash, you keep it in a locked drawer. Now, this is kind of a passion of mine. Um, Don't play games with the IRS. I have a lot of clients that say to me, well, I take money home, I take the cash home with me because I think it's more secure that way. Well, if you've listened to our webinars before, you know that that's not true, Um, but that's not what we're really addressing with this section. What I'm addressing with this section is when when those funds are taken by the business owner, those are your funds and you can do whatever you want to with them. However, You need to be cognizant that whatever your staff members see you do, they will do also. For example, I had a case of two partners that were working together and they had an agreement that when a large paid in full cash patient would come in, which would be around $8,000, that the staff member was told to post that into the computer. That evening, 
one of those partners would come and back that transaction out, delete it out, and then add an adjustment. And then those two owners would split that money, right? Hey, it's their money. They can do whatever they want to with it. But by them doing that, what they did was they gave their staff member permission to do the exact same thing. And she did. Okay. So they taught her how to steal. Secondly, if you're going to take the money home with you, make sure you have a record of what you've saw. I recommend signing, actually signing the day sheet that you've taken possession or you've um, taken custody of those funds. Because if it ever happens that there is a question about if those funds were deposited, were they not deposited, who took them, and they simply, and the staff member simply says, oh, well, the doctor takes the cash home. And the doctor or the practice owner can't account for how much cash has gone home with them, then you can't prove it was that. For example, I had a case of a doctor who was taking cash home with him, and that's fine. Um, I did up a list for him, and I said, these are cash deposits that we're missing from your bank. Did you take this money home? And it was like $35,000. And he said, absolutely not. I did not take that much money. I took maybe about 10. And I said, can you show me your records of the cash that you took home? He had no records. And therefore, he had no case that theft had occurred. So if you're going to take money home with you, make sure you make a record of it in your office and make sure you deposit it in the bank or make a note to your CPA of the amount because the IRS rounds on that. Right, but no judgment here for the IRS round. Okay, go ahead, Dave. Sorry, balancing staff and reconciliation owner. Okay, um, Dave and Amber, jump in here with me um, and help keep me focused because you know I'm passionate about this. At the end of the day, you got your funds there. Your staff member got your funds there, and you got your day sheet there. How do you know that they match? It's your staff member's responsibility on a daily basis. I'm adamant about that. Some people aren't, but I am on a daily basis that they take the checks and the cash and the money or all physical payments that are there. They look at them. They look at the day sheet and they make sure that it, they match, that all the information listed is correct. Then you add up those funds individually and you make sure that amount balances with the amount that's listed on the day sheet. If there's an error, you correct it. Right. So whoever balances person number one balances, then they sign the day sheet that it's been balanced. And then person number two comes in and balances as well. And it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be about um, embezzlement or theft. It can be just about correcting errors and finding errors. Like if you've ever worked in an office, you know that one day you check the day sheet and there's like one hundred thousand dollars posted on a patient's account. You're like, oh. Wow, it's an error, right? If you're not, if your staff's not balancing or if you're not balancing, you never catch those errors, right? So that's the part that your staff does. Now, reconciliation is also what I'm passionate about. And that's what the owner's responsible for or the owner is responsible for following up with someone and making sure that it gets done on a monthly basis. That's where you find theft if it's happening in certain areas. But you want to make sure that you're comparing the data that comes out of your practice management software with what actually went into the bank. 
right? Comparing what comes out of your software with um, what's recorded in your QuickBooks, no. Comparing QuickBooks to what goes into the bank, no. These two, practice management software with what actually goes into the bank, okay? And Dave is going to talk about float cash and petty cash. Just to shut me up. <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to um, I wanted to amplify something you said. I have a lot of practice owners who say to me, you know, one of the things I do to protect myself is I make the bank deposit myself. And I say to them, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but understand it gets you no protection. Your protection comes from knowing how much the bank deposit should be and ensuring that that amount of money actually got to the bank. And who carries it to the bank is kind of irrelevant. The question is, did the right amount arrive there? So that requires two things. It requires what Wendy said. You have to start by knowing how much the deposit should be. And then you have to check that that was the amount that was deposited. If you do those two things, as I say, it doesn't really matter who takes the money to the bank. Um, when you're seeing how much money went into the bank, don't rely on a deposit slip because it's a piece of paper, which means that it can be altered. Um, the only thing that's really valid is to go to online banking and log in and see what the deposit was, and that's that's unequivocal. Um, yeah. In terms of what I'm supposed to be talking about here, which is the, the float cash versus petty cash, um, a lot of practices do something that makes their lives a lot harder. They have one cash drawer, and cash comes in when patients pay it, and cash goes out when, for example, the owner forgets her lunch money and takes $20 out of the cash. And the problem with that taking the $20 out of the cash is that then at the end of the day, whoever's balancing the cash has to recognize that that happened and has to sort of make one more calculation to determine that it balances. Um, it's a whole lot easier if you think of two independent amounts of cash. One is flow cash, and flow cash is what you use to make change um, when patients come in and pay. So the idea of flow cash is it should start the day at the same amount every single day. So if it's $500 in your practice, basically what happens at the end of the day is whoever's balancing the cash counts out $500 and puts it back in the drawer and everything else, which should add up to what your practice management software says that the cash received today is, those two should line up. The, the excess over 500 should just go right into the bank. And there should be no further calculation other than looking at, you know, separating out the, the, the starting amount of, of today's float, which is also the starting amount of tomorrow's float from everything else and everything else should be what you collected today, okay? That, that keeps it really simple and foolproof. The second cash is called petty cash. And what petty cash means is that's what we use when the practice has to pay out something in cash. You know, somebody sends you a lab case and they, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't pay the courier and you have to pay them. Or like I say, doctor forgot his lunch money. Or, you know, you're, um, you, you, you found out that, um, you know, some, some patient's mother died and you're going to send flowers and you're paying cash. Petty cash is for that stuff, for outgoing cash. And the way that that works is it starts at a set amount. Let's say it's $200. Anytime cash goes out of petty cash, it gets replaced by a receipt. And therefore, cash plus receipts always add up to using my number $200. When the cash gets low, what the office manager does, because normally it's the office manager who's the custodian of petty cash, what the office manager does is gather up all the receipts and you write a check in the amount of all those receipts and that she cashes it and puts that money back into petty cash. And then you're back to 200 
if you keep them separate, life gets a lot simpler. I mean, petty cash only needs to be looked at like once a month. Float cash needs to be done every day. Again, the offices that combine them just make a lot of work for themselves. Can I add something to that last topic, Dave? Yeah, sure. So in to um, the fact that some offices are still going to be uh, taking cash, one thing that uh, I would recommend offices require as part of your policy and procedure is that receipts be printed off for patients no matter what form of payment they are completing with your practice. So whether you're accepting cash or credit card or checks from a patient, you need to make sure that every a receipt is printed for every single patient so that it's in your software in your audit log and in, in, in some way to track to see what type of payment um, was completed and that a receipt has been printed off in my experience i've had a lot of uh, staff members say oh the patient didn't want the receipt still make them print a receipt so that you have a hard physical copy that came through the software and you have that proof that it was that it came through it's a good idea. I mean, a smart thief can can find a different way to issue receipts than running them through the practice management software. But um, Amber's right. Let's not make it easy for people. Right. So uh, our next question, question number five, what is the best way to avoid or eliminate time thieves? So this, you know, as people come in and out of your office, a lot of times they will forget to clock in, clock out. So that's one way we'll see it happen. But the key point here we want to make sure everybody understands is when you hire somebody, whether they're salary or hourly, whatever your agreement is, you need to have that documented in writing. Just like a clinical note on a patient, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. So uh, I've had some cases with some payroll where people have embezzled money that way, but there was no hard concrete documentation of what was agreed upon. So just make sure when you hire somebody that you have it in writing what your agreement is with that staff member. Um, and like I said, people will come in and come out. They, they may forget to clock in and clock out using your technology. One of the great new things that technology offers us now is a biometric uh, reader. And that's where they just put their uh, fingerprint right when they arrive and then they use their fingerprint as they leave. Uh, it's really hard for somebody else to change their time for them because it goes off of their fingerprint. So that's, that's the great thing about it. And these readers are really affordable now. They used to be pretty pretty expensive, but if you really research a biometric reader, you'll see that they're very affordable. And that, that's one way to better safeguard yourself. The other thing is for those people who forget to clock in, forget to clock out, forget to, to, to use the software for their lunch break, is really make sure that not everybody can go in and change their time, that that's limited. Either yourself or your office manager, um, it, it's really hard for somebody to just go in and change their time. And there has to be some accountability that they go to that person and say, hey, I didn't clock in, I didn't clock out. Can you help me help me with that? So it allows you to have some accountability. Now, most offices are going to pay, you're going to pay your staff every two weeks, bi-weekly or twice a month, whatever your policy is. But, you know, that's a lot of hours and a lot of moving parts. So one thing we definitely recommend as a practice owner, at the end of the week, part of your weekly closing duty, review those hours and make sure you approve the hours that have happened for the week. So that when payroll comes around, when payday comes around, you don't have a stack of time uh, to review and you don't have people just saying, oh yeah, that was right, that was right. So you, you don't have to think back so far. So start approving your time at the end of every week for your staff members. Um, then if you're using a third party provider to do your payroll, you want to make sure that you have a, a, a review of all those time entries 
and how, how that's being completed. Um, you need to review your payroll system against time entries or salary. So like I said, if you're using a third-party provider, you wanna make sure that what was completed on your biometric reader, your software, that it matches what the report that you get from your CPA or somebody else who's completing your, your payroll. Um, a, new, a new question here too with our COVID-based work changes, how we were talking about people are remoting uh, and working from home, that the salary makes sense. Some people wanna be put on a salary rather than, than have this hourly time clock, but you still need to track it and monitor it and make sure that it's being completed um, in a written standard procedure that makes sense for you and the team member. And kind of a follow-up question to this, if somebody is stealing through payroll or possibly bonus manipulation, what do you need to prove that they, they committed fraud? And the answer I normally give people is this, we need one of two things, documentation or deception. Documentation is what Amber talked about a minute ago. If we're gonna accuse somebody of, of payroll fraud, we need to be able to prove either that they took more money than their contract permitted or deception, which I'll talk about in a minute. We, we run into a lot of cases, and Amber, you've done, a, you've done a couple of payroll cases recently. We've run into a lot of cases where, you know, what, what, the, what the employee is supposed to be paid can't be proven. Um, maybe there's no written employment contract, or maybe there was one 10 years ago, you know, but they've gotten six pay raises since then. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a formal contract, you know, that's 12 pages long and signed in blood. Um, you know, an exchange of emails would even do it. Um, you know, I agreed to raise your salary from $17 an hour to $18.25. Would be enough to establish what somebody should have been paid. But the basic problem you get into is if you can't prove what they should have been paid, and let's say this is the person who's preparing the payroll for you, then you have a problem. Um, our legal system just does not send people to jail for your word against theirs. Um, we've all watched uh, cop and lawyer shows on TV and we all understand that the, the threshold, the standard of proof for a criminal conviction is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And mathematically that equates to like 90% certain. So if the employee swears that they were, you know, that the agreement with the employer was that, that they were gonna be paid $21 an hour and the doctor swears that the amount was $18, nobody's gonna to go to jail over that because it's, it's, it's gonna be one credible witness against another and, and our justice system just will not convict on that basis. Um, the other issue, and Amber kind of touched on this as well, is that in a lot of offices, the office manager does the payroll with no oversight whatsoever from the doctor. In other words, the doctor doesn't get the reports from the payroll company and you know eyeball them and check them. For salaried employees, check them against the salary. For time-based employees, to look at the, the time entries and, and so on. As soon as you turn your back on this one totally, you open the door to the person preparing the payroll, giving them self a raise, giving their 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 two um, teachers pets raises, um, you know you can't you can't advocate out of this. The other thing that sometimes saves us though, in a in a case of payroll fraud, is deception. So when the employee deceives the employer about what's going on, that takes away the argument that I was entitled to this money. Um, 
Mindy Salzman, who's who's one of our senior examiners, uh, recently did a case, and it was a it was a, a practice where um, what the office manager was doing was was overpaying themselves. The way that the the payroll company um, calculated the pay was that the office manager sent the payroll company a spreadsheet each each pay period. What the office manager was doing here was sending one spreadsheet to the payroll company and then a different version of the spreadsheet with their compensation lower to the practice owner. Okay, in, th in that case, we're okay without any documentation. I mean, nobody would do that unless they're stealing. So as I say, we're back to documentation or deception. Anything to add there, Texas Tornadoes? You know, I'd like to ask, uh... I mean, I, I know it's true. Wait a minute. You don't get to ask questions. We, we're here to answer them. <laughs> hey, I know it's true for me that um, I've seen a lot of payroll and bonus uh, manipulation cases lately. And I know Amber's had, I mean, has Prosperident as a firm in general seen an increase in that? It, it seems like we used to never have payroll cases. Now they're everywhere. It's true, Wendy, and I've noticed the same thing. And it's you know I haven't studied it, so I don't have any statistics to give you. But yeah, certainly this year, and maybe it's it's a little bit related to COVID, uh, in in a couple of different possible ways. But yeah, we've we've been seeing a lot more of that. I agree with you. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're kind of one of the harder ones. Me as an investigator, I'll say payroll cases are a little bit harder um, to do or to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, simply because the documentation is hardly ever there. Yeah, if if somebody's got good documentation, this is easy. It's a slam dunk. You know, yeah. if if the employment agreement, which is up to date, says that the office manager's pay is eighteen dollars, and we go to the payroll company and we see that she raised her pay from eighteen to twenty one dollars, it's a slam dunk. Um, the problem is that, and, and I think you see three nodding heads in front of you, ladies and gentlemen, we all agree that practices do a piss poor job of documenting somehow how employees are supposed to be paid. Um, yeah. so, and, even, and even bonuses. Yeah, bonuses. Yeah, bonuses and, you know, we see, a lot of, we see a lot of bonus calculations manipulated. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so... You've all got HR advisors. Uh, they can they can help you with this. Yeah. Yeah. I, can I add one thing to that, Dave? Yep. You know, I've seen a lot of issues with bonuses where it's specific to like just your office manager or just this. So those are that that does so is one more area that you really have to look at. And also same with like holidays and paid time off. In a in a case that I had recently, rather than um, certain people getting eight hours of a paid holiday, they racked on a couple more hours holidays so it's not just about the clocking in and the clocking out you have to look at all the logistics and and really look at those timesheets and make sure that everything is uh, that that's part of your policy is being completed accurately absolutely yeah that's a great point amber number seven would you recommend dentists acting together to form a database to register these embezzlement offenders to protect others from them I have excellent news. We've already done that for you. Um, if you will go to the Prosperident website, we have the Hall of Shame, which not only includes um, 
uh, cases that were done by Prosperident, but cases that have just been publicly published all over the United States. Do we have other countries, Dave? You bet we do. And there? Okay. I usually just look for Texas. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, so from all, all over the world, um, and you can break it down by um, state, city, um, whatever you want to break it down by, you can do that. Um, one thing um, that I do have a little bit of concern about is on its face, this question sounds a bit crazy, to be honest, but I understand where the person that asked this question is coming from. I had a case where one doctor um, got embezzled for several hundred thousand dollars. Um, we released the suspect and she hounded him so much so that he had to have a restraining order taken out against her. And then two months later, he found out she was working for an orthodontist down the street who had just graduated from school and passed his boards. And it was his first shingle he was hanging out. Oh. And he hired her to set up his practice because she had so much experience at doctors so-and-so's office. And I mean, he called me and we had a long discussion about it and it broke my heart. Um, and he said, Wendy, she will break him before he ever even has a chance to be successful. I can't let this happen. What are you going to do? I mean, the guy didn't call for, the young doctor didn't call for a reference. My client can't go to him and say, hey, fire her. Do you know what she's done? Um, so I did give him some advice that kind of a mob gangster would probably do, but I'm not going to share that because my boss probably would not like that. Because you're a lady. Because <laughs> I'm a lady. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So um, I understand where this is coming from, but keep in mind that what you say about someone, a former employee, to another um, professional um, in public, out loud, and someone overhears that, that can be held against you as slander, right? So remember that. So don't like go writing names, keeping a private database, because um, you can get in trouble for that. Anyway, I'm belaboring the point, I apologize. Um, so if you happen to have a picture or a, a public printing, now that's the issue that we deal with at Prosperity. Everything, every person that you will see on the Hall of Shame is from a public, either charged or convicted embezzler. That's, that's the important thing. They have to be legally charged or legally convicted. Okay. Um, if you know of one that you would like to share with us, or maybe that you would like us to check out for you, um, send us an email and we can help you with that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to go a little Texas on you now. I think the reason that a lot of doctors don't call for references from their employees is, number one, they're just too busy. Uh, number two, they just don't want to take the time because they're too busy. And number three, they might be a little bit embarrassed. They don't want the other doctor to think they're poaching on their employee or, you know, maybe they're afraid of what they're going to hear. Listen, please 
make the damn reference call, please. You don't need a database. You don't need the Prosperity Hall of Shame. If you'll make the damn call to former employers and ask, would you rehire this employee, right? A lot of people can save themselves a lot of trouble and a lot of pain if they would just pick up the phone. All right, I'll get off my soapbox. I'm sorry for the cursing. The problem I have with this concept, as Wendy says, first of all, it's people trying to avoid making that call that we all know has to be made. Beyond that, if doctors set up their own database like this, um, you get into murky legal ground very quickly. I mean, our our polishing is extensively researched. We have a very detailed policy on when we put somebody on there, and we have an equally detailed policy on when we remove somebody because there are certain circumstances where we'll remove somebody. Um, you know, like after they're deceased, for example. Um, when people start doing this on their own without those safeguards, um, you know, it's just a slander case waiting to happen. So, uh, you know, just use ours, as Wendy said, if you have somebody that you think should be there to let us know and we'll, we'll research them the way we research everybody else and, uh, and, and be happy to add them if, if they're in the zone. Okay, so a lot of you practice as solo practitioners. Some of you are in a group practice or a multi-office practice or maybe even a DSO. Um, for those of you who don't know, DSO is dental service organization, so that's kind of a dental chain if you want to think of it that way. So uh, Heartland or um, Aspen Dental or in Canada, um, one, two, three dentist or somebody like that, they're, they're um, examples of DSOs. And the question is, well, if I'm in that situation, how do I handle this problem? And the first thing I'll say is if you own five offices, your life gets a lot easier if all five use the same practice management software. Now, that's easy if the way that those practices got there was you started them each from scratch. It's a little bit tougher if the way that you're growing is by buying practices because when you buy a practice, of course, it, it has whatever software it has. Um, my suggestion to you if you buy practices is that you plan from, from the time before you purchase to convert that practice to another software. It, that doesn't mean you have to do it on the day you sign the check, but there needs to be a plan. And I would say within six to nine months after acquisition, you really need to be on common software. Um, if you have diverse software, a couple of things happen. The first is that you can't uh, have any kind of consolidation routine. So, you know, you're, you, you have information from each office. And one of the things you want to know if you own five offices is, well, you know, what was our collective revenue this month? If you're using disparate pieces of practice management software, then you know somebody's got to sit there with a spreadsheet and add stuff up. Um, whereas you you really want to be able to automate that consolidation. Um, the second suggestion that we'll make is that if you have five offices, each one should have its own bank account. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to pay payroll from five different accounts. I mean, you can have a you can have an office account that that does disbursements, but for deposits. It's a whole lot easier if each practice puts its money into its own account. And then, you know, you can consolidate all that money and the banks will do this for you. You know, you can consolidate it all into a central account, but flow it through an individual account. If you have one bank account that 20 different practices are depositing to, I mean, there's no way to know if that balanced or not. You would, you would need a, a team of accountants to figure that out. If you have one office that has one set of reports and one bank account, 
it gets a whole lot simpler. Um, the other thing is you really need when you get to a certain size, what I'll call a reconciliation department. So this is this is some bookkeepers typically at head office and their job is to review the reports from each individual practice and make sure that everything adds up to the way it's supposed to. You might recall from our previous presentations that we kind of see two kinds of embezzlement. We see embezzlement that happens when reconciliation doesn't go on. In other words, where somebody steals money out of the deposit, it, it's easy to do because they don't have to do anything in the practice management software. So if you have five practices and each one is reconciling individually and nobody's looking over anybody's shoulder, you're vulnerable to them. If reconciliation is done, stealing can still happen, but now it requires cooking the books. It requires playing games with practice management software, which is a little more complicated. And right to my next point, the reconciliation department at head office needs direct access to each individual software. In other words, it should not be like each practice prints off reports and emails them to head office. Um, the people in reconciliation should generate their own reports, first of all. And secondly, they should have wide open access to software. In other words, they should be able to say, well, you know, the receivables at this practice look a little bit out of whack. Let's start looking at individual patient ledgers to see what might be going on. Okay, we can't have sort of a, a firewall between uh, the people doing the reconciliation and, and the people in each individual practice. So if you have a, a, a multiple office kind of structure, these are the things you, you need to start thinking about. Um, one of Amber's jobs with us is to help people set up their systems in a way that's protective. And um, we, we have a product specifically designed for multiple practice offices. Amber, I don't know if there's anything you want to embellish here. Yeah, the other thing I'd like to add is um, if, even if you are going to have a separate account for each location, you, I would also recommend if you are doing insurance electronically, like, like direct deposit, that that be its own separate account as well. Um, so it, there's a lot of moving parts to that, but like you're saying, Dave, the main, the main thing is, is each location needs to be reconcilable and be able to monitor on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Absolutely. Thanks, Amber. You know, and yeah. Can we go back to that for one second? Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing about that is that if you're going to be, if you're going to try to measure profitability by location, because mm -hmm. I work with orthodontists and a lot of them have multi, I mean, most of them have multi locations. How do you measure the profitability of one location versus the other location to see where your resources need to be allocated if everything is just going into one bank account and expenses are written out? I mean, you know, you can pull out collection, you can pull out production and you can pull out collection individually out of the software, but you can't generate a PL with expenses on that if you've got it all, your expenses all mingled. I'll give a slightly different viewpoint there. I mean, you can, but it, it means that your your accounting system needs to have, you know, um, eight different revenue accounts being revenue for each each individual branch of your practice. And yeah. you need to allocate it. I mean, you can do it, Wendy, but, um, you know, it, it gets a lot simpler if you can have a bank account that is tied to allocation and you can see how much money goes through that account. That, yeah. that makes the profitability picture a whole lot simpler. Yeah. Yeah. I am all for simple. <laughs> Number nine, how does someone know that they are being embezzled when everything looks normal? Well, the first question is what exactly is normal? 
Um, every practice is different, although they may have similar characteristics, they're different. And what exactly are you looking at? Um, you know, it's the goal of every embezzler to make whatever it is you're looking at look normal. I've worked on several cases in which if you didn't have the skills to know what to look for, then you would think everything was normal. I mean, I worked on a case of someone who was just stealing money, uh, stealing money out of the deposit, to be honest with you. Just pure, simple stealing it, uh, simple theft out of the deposit. But yet when I reconciled the practice management software to the bank statement, it matched perfectly. So if I didn't know exactly what to look for, then I wouldn't have known. So it's easy to embezzle and make everything look normal. Another thing that you need to remember, and I can tell you this is true 100% from the deepest bottom of my heart, every embezzlement leaves a trail. It leaves a trail. It depends on if it's where you're looking or where you're not looking. And remember, Prosperity always talks about the behaviors. That's because the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners prints out um, a report to the nations every single year. And as a certified fraud examiner, I read it every single year and every single year it always says the same thing about in over 90% of the cases that were reported of fraud and embezzlement around the world in every different type of industry, not just dentistry, not just medical, not just insurance, every industry, over 90% of those thieves exhibited somewhere between one and three characteristic behavioral characteristics that we always talk about um, at Prosperident and we have the embezzlement risk assessment questionnaire for exactly for that purpose. Um, so I'm gonna backtrack a little bit and I'm gonna say, let's throw out the concept of what looks normal financially with our records and let's start looking at what looks normal or abnormal with our behaviors or our employees behaviors is there anything you want to add to that um i'll just kind of echo i get a lot of calls from people or a lot of people will say to me you know when i'm speaking at a conference um there's no way i'm being embezzled because my deposit equals my day sheet every day mm -hmm. and i always tell people there are two ways to embezzle there's reconciliation theft, and, and if if you're not doing that comparison, then I can steal from the deposit. I don't, you know, I simply allow the deposit to be a different number than um, than what the reports say it should be. Or if you do that reconciliation, and I still want to steal, and I will, then what I need to do is teach your software how to work. And I'm not going to get into a description of how that happens here because we don't do that in public, but if you're a practice owner and you have questions, reach out to us and uh, we're, we're more than happy to have the discussion. We see a lot of reconciliation theft because there are a lot of practices where the doctor doesn't ever look at the amount that you're going to make. And we also see uh, probably an equal amount of kind of concealment type theft where, where somebody's cooking the software. Yep. Well, one thing I wanna to add to that too, Dave, is going back to the behavioral part of it is 
when you ask a question, what's their behavior? How do they want to answer that question? And it can go from a very simple question like, you know, what what's going on with this insurance? Why didn't it cover? So, so those are some things to just keep, keep note of too. How are certain people that everything may appear normal, but when you start asking hard, detailed, specific questions, what type of response are you getting on a regular basis? Amber, you said words to me a little while ago that I'm, I'm going to bring back because I thought they were so profound. What Amber said to me was, is, you know, one thing to really watch out for, um, I think the words you used, Amber, were a lack of transparency. Yeah. Uh, you know, you ask somebody a question and you get an obfuscatory answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they give you the three-minute answer to the 30-second question. Right. They they sort of try, you know, through through the middle of the answer to make you forget the question. Um, so I'll 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 just uh, bring those words back because I thought that was a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Okay, we gotta get going or we'll never get finished these. Um <clears throat> number 10, what about cameras in my practice? Uh, a couple of things I'll say here. First of all, you're you're in the realm of governed by state law. So most states allow allow you to put cameras in your in your practice if you want to record video. Um, the obvious exception is private areas. So we're talking about a restroom or uh, in a lot of states, a break room is, is considered a private area. Um, <clears throat> the question is, can we have hidden cameras? In general, no. Almost every state requires if video surveillance is being used that the, the people under surveillance be aware of it. So that means that you have to tell your staff and also that you need to, you know, have the sign on the front door so that when the patients come in, they know that they too are under video surveillance. Now, here's the interesting part. Um, it is much easier to record video than audio. Um, and when you record audio, you, you fall under wire wiretapping or sometimes called um, eavesdropping laws. And here's how it works. In 39 states, they're called one-party states. So what that means is that one party to the conversation can consent to the recording. In the other 11 states, they are known as all-party states, and that requires every single person who's involved in a conversation to consent. So let's consider a couple of scenarios. You put a, you put a camera that records video and audio in your private office, and presumably whatever it's recording is conversations between you and somebody else. So that's okay because you're you're a party to the conversation and clearly you consent. The second scenario is you put a camera over the front desk that records audio and video. Now that's not okay unless the, the, the staff member specifically, who's, who's there at the time specifically consents. And realistically, that's not gonna happen. So what I tell people is if you have video, normally you need to have the audio part not recorded. You can, you can capture video without audio. Um, if somebody external to the practice, like for example, your alarm monitoring company has access to this, then you need to consider HIPAA issues because the images of patients are protected under HIPAA. And I will say this, even if it happens to be legal in your state to have hidden cameras, it's a really bad idea. You know, it's not like you see in the Tom Cruise movies where, you know, the, the camera's the size of, um, you know, a dime. Um, permanently mounted cameras need infrastructure. So they need a power source. They need to have a way to upload the video to a computer somewhere. Okay. These are a little bulkier than, than perhaps your mental picture is. 
And if you put those in your practice, sooner or later, one of your employees is going to find them. And just imagine the trust issues that happen when, when they find them. And the final point is this. Um, Wendy, I'll, I'll, I'll put you on the spot. Um, how often in your lengthy career with us have you seen embezzlement captured on camera? Um, I, I think I've had, I've had several cases where they've submitted it, submitted the, the video of it, but it's not sharp enough to tell exactly what the person is doing. Are they forging a check or are they writing out their grocery list? Yeah. Um, I, I've been at this 31 years. I've seen somebody caught three times. So. The other problem with cameras is this. If you have an office that's open 35 hours a week and you have two cameras covering your front desk, congratulations, you're now shooting 70 hours of video every week. Um, just going to ask you a really simple question. When are you going to watch it? So cameras are, are a murky area. I mean, yes, you can do it. And I, I think personally cameras have other uses and practices. If I were a male dentist treating female patients, for example, I'd probably want a camera in the operative. Because if somebody ever claims that I gave them some nitrous and then broke them, I'm going to be able to show where my hands went and that they never went below the bib. Um, so I, I think cameras have other purposes. Also, you know, they're a good protection at the front desk. I mean, there are people who will come into your office and if they don't see anybody at the front desk, they'll walk away with the monitor that's there. They're great for that kind of stuff. For embezzlement, pretty close to useless. What insurance covers me if I am embezzled? How do I claim? Okay, I love talking about insurance, embezzlement, and theft insurance. Um, what everyone doesn't always realize is that you probably most likely do have um, a theft indemnity clause within the insurance that you have right now with the insurance policy. Um, it's generally called employee dishonesty insurance, um, and it's um, generally under property theft somewhere in there. The typical coverage is around $25,000. If I were you, my recommendation would be to increase that to a minimum of 75, um, if not 100, because when it happens, it will be that much when you find it, most likely. So it'll cost you a couple of extra um, couple extra bucks to increase it for your own safety and peace of mind. Um, another issue that we work with at Prosperidan is filing insurance claims or helping our clients file insurance claims. This can be quite difficult to do. Um, or let me rephrase that. It's not necessarily difficult. It's that the amount of information and the type of information that the insurance company requires is just flat out ridiculous, to be honest with you. It's ridiculous. Um, but they, they do have a list of certain things that are required. Um, and we've actually had a question that says, um, how do you claim from insurance if your receptionist has pocketed cash from patients without getting the patients involved. Um, it is my cardinal rule as an investigator, and I know with Amber and probably the rest of our uh, examiners as well, if I can do whatever I can do or have to do 
to keep this information out of the hands of my client's patients, then that's what I'm going to do. So to answer your question, if you can track the transactions through your practice management software, and there are ways to do that specifically, I don't want to discuss here, of course, in this public forum, um, but if you'll send me an email or you want to give me a shout on the phone, then we can talk about that. Um, there are definitely ways to do it in which you don't have to advise your patients depending on how the money was stolen. Um, anyway, so you generally have to have a claim uh, when you're filing an insurance, you have to have a proof of loss form, which has to be completed, a narrative about um, the loss, a master list of losses, um, and your proof of loss form, of course, has to be notarized. And there are some other uh, highly sensitive areas in there that you have to navigate through. But yes, you do have an insur uh, employee dishonesty insurance coverage. I bet you if you get your policy out and look at it, you'll find it. That's it for me. Okay. Oh, you want to cover that, Dave? Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Dave. Oh, or not. All right. Uh, oh, yeah. We'll just talk about bonding for a second. So bonding is, a, is another way of getting insurance coverage. Um, when your employees are bonded, it, it tends to have a much higher limit. It's also much more expensive. But what the bonding company will do is actually look at each of your employees, do background check to determine whether or not they're bondable. Um, so that's that's another option that I'll mention to have a have a conversation with your insurance insurance agent about as a way of covering yourself with that. That's all I had. All right. Question number twelve: What are three things I should do each month to protect myself? And this is this is something I'm passionate about with our office protection system. Uh, I always tell my clients with office protection system the difference is in the details. So the first thing we talked about was, is reconcile. So this is where you use your practice management software and you look against your bank statements, merchant accounts, like who you do your credit card payments through, and third-party accounts, care, credit, anything like that. Like we mentioned earlier, just looking at your QuickBooks versus your bank is not really going to give you those difference in the details with your practice management software to make sure that middle ground is met. This is definitely something, you know, that if you want to, you, it can be outsourced, like Dave talked about with DSOs, but you need to make sure that they have access to the reports and the information to do a true reconciliation from your practice management software. The second thing is, is review. Review your entry logs for um, your alarm system. Who's come in? The, the day's been closed. The week's been closed. Has anybody come in after hours and logged into your system and changed stuff? Uh, to be able to change things after you think everything matches and those details are clear and concise. As we talked about earlier, also, if you're doing remote access, you also want to be able to look at who logged into the system after hours, after a day was closed, and have the ability to change that as well. And the second one is reports. You know, it's, we talked about your bank deposit can match the bank report, the, the, the deposit slipped off, the, off of the software can match uh, your banking, but you need to make sure you know how to pull all of the true reports that let, let you see those details. Any modified transactions, adjustments, anything that was deleted that maybe should have went to your bank, uh, your accounts receivable, what's happening with patient balances, is that being monitored and tracked correctly? So like I said, it's the differences in the details. So if you want to protect yourself, make sure you're looking at reconciliation, review, and know your software and know your reports. 
Moving on uh, to our next question, how does a practice get long-term embezzlement protection and what are costs involved? How long does it take and can it be done remotely? Uh, we do offer office protection system. We can access this remotely. And what we do is we look at 25 key points in your software and your practice and in your banking. And we look for any areas of vulnerability or, or areas that we wanna help you get good uh, policy and procedures in to help you have some financial integrity and, and safety. The typical cost for a solo practice is $7,000. Um, it usually takes about six to eight weeks to be completed. The main thing here though is as a practice owner, in order for you to be protected and safeguarded, you have to be involved um, for this change in implementation. We work with you to help uh, teach you what areas you need to focus on, but that's the real uh, main thing is you have to be involved in implementing that change within the practice. All right. Um, question we got that I think was a great one. When Prosperity is working with a doctor, how does their privacy get protected and also that of their patients? Um, the way we protect you is very simple. When we're doing an investigation, it is stealthy. We go to great lengths to make sure that your staff have no idea that you're taking a look at the practice. And that's important whether embezzlement is happening or not. If it's not happening, you don't want to go to your staff and say, you know what, I, I didn't trust you for a minute or two, so I had an audit done. But don't worry, you did fine. Um, you know, that'll make staff meetings frosty for the next decade or so. Um, and if something is happening, we don't want the thief to see that they're about to get caught because they may do something really desperate, you know, kind of the embezzlement equivalent of a Hail Mary pass to, to try to protect themselves. Um, in terms of patient privacy, we, we have wide open access to your software. So we sign what's called a business associate agreement, and that's a privacy document that keeps you compliant under HIPAA uh, when sharing information with us. Um, the other thing I'll say, because you know, people ask me sometimes, well, when I give you my data, is it safe? Um, and I'm just going to send a shout out here to um, our IT guys. And, and uh, we have two really uh, brilliant guys who run our IT department. Uh, Jake Hiltz is our chief information officer. And Seamus Leonard is his deputy. And the links that those guys have gone to to make our data secure are unbelievable. For example, um, our server's not in our head office. Our, our servers are offsite in a, in a separate server building. And here's how secretive those guys are. I don't know where it is. I've never been there. I have a, I have a general idea like within about an eight block radius, but I have no need to know where that stuff is. Uh, so yeah, these guys take, uh, take the privacy very seriously. So when people ask me this question, I kind of laugh and say, well, you know, realistically, our stuff is about 30 times as secure in our hands as it is in yours. And usually when I say that, the, the client says, okay, I'm, I'm feeling better about that. So we are Prosperident, and um, I, I hope um, Dave, Amber, and myself represent our company well, although we, we are a, a bit goofy, I realize, and we have fun together. But, you know, we are the largest in dental embezzlement firm in the world. Um, that's all we do. We specialize in that. We have investigators all over the United States and Canada. Um, so we are really a serious business and we take what we do very, very seriously. Um, we specialize in investment investigations 
for uh, dental practices and dental specialists. And we provide our office protection system, which Amber um, went over, which is a 25 point review of the policies and procedures within your office um, to help guard against embezzlement. We also provide litigation support and expert testimony um, for those individuals that need that. Um, a few resources that we'll talk about. The first one is us. If you have a question, if there's something you want to talk about, um, um, feel free to reach out to us. And we're, we're always happy to have that conversation with somebody who says, this is what I'm concerned about, or this is what I'd like to do, or I'm buying a practice and what do I need to worry about there? And we love to have those conversations. Um, the second thing I'm going to mention is that until September 30th, if you want to us to help you with your systems, then um, that's the office protection system product that, that each of Amber and Wendy have mentioned in the last couple of minutes, contact us. And um, the other thing I'll mention, if COVID has uh, taken a bit of a bite of it, out of your cash flow, and when I say if there, I, I really mean because, uh, we're allowing people to to finance our products, so we, we, we give payment terms to make them affordable, and that's so on. And uh, the final thing is, if you like what we do, we would love you forever if you left us a Google review. Um, we, we really don't ask for anything in these webinars at all. It's, it's really about giving rather than receiving. But um, if, you, if, if you like us, as I say, we'd love you forever. And uh, we'll, we'll tackle maybe a, a, a few questions. I, I see we're very close to time, so we, we might have time for two. Um, the, the one question that I got is this. Uh, Somebody said there are some insurance companies that pay by kind of putting money on a credit card. And what we do is we take that credit card and we run it through our merchant machine. I'm, I'm gonna say a couple of things about this. I'm gonna say really expensive way to get paid because now the merchant terminal is gonna take their fee from you, which could be two and a half percentage points. Um, the second thing is there are all kinds of ways that this can turn into fraud. So, what I recommend you do is if you have insurance companies doing that, by law, they can't pay, they, they can't compel you to be paid that way. Just stop it. Tell them no way, pay me by check or put the money in my account, but no more of this uh, replenishing the credit card. As I say, you're paying two and a half percent to the insurance company for absolutely nothing. Um, so let's kill that one. Um, I, I think there was one or two questions maybe that we wanted to bring out. Um, Amber? Oh, sorry, Dave. I, I had a question. Um, someone had asked, is it okay to use a triplicate receipt book for cash? Um, of course it is. But what you have to remember about a receipt book is this. They sell them at uh, Office Depot. So you can, you can buy your receipt book. And if I'm a thief and I don't want to use your receipt book, I'll go get my own. Um, Receipts aren't really the solution to the problem here. Okay. Um, the, the, the real solution to the problem is you at the end of the day looking at your day end report and saying, okay, that patient was in and did they pay? Did they pay their copay? Yeah. You know, if our if our office policy is that we collect copays, then was it collected? And that's a far better safeguard. You know, that, that level of analysis, that, that cognizance of what happened today is far more important than fooling around with receipt books because a receipt's just a piece of paper. 
And you know, if I want to have the, if I want to give the patient a receipt that says eight hundred dollars, and have the duplicate and the triplicate in the receipt book say a thousand dollars, I can make that happen. Okay, forgery is not hard. Um, so great question, but I, I'm I'm not sure that's gonna that's gonna solve any problem for you. Remember that it's fine to make rules, but then your staff have to follow. Them. And if you have somebody who's an embezzler, they're not going to feel any particular compulsion to follow your rules. Yep. Um, here's a question, Dave. When I've called for references, the only information I usually receive is confirmation of the dates of employment. Previous employers are hesitant to answer anything else because they cannot be certain that the person calling is not related to the former employee who is checking up on what is said about them therefore opening themselves up to defamation of character. The only question I now ask is would they hire them again? Sometimes even that isn't helpful. What specifically should you ask when checking references? Um, the, that is a fantastic question. The first thing I'd say is this, what I would offer the person at the other end is, look, I'm Dr. So-and-so. If you want to look up my number on Google and then call me back, I'm happy for you to do that. So let's eliminate the, the fear that the other side has that they're really talking to the applicant system. Um, the other thing you can say to this person is, you understand that this person may be denied employment with me because you are not prepared to answer this question. Now, that's playing a little bit of hardball with, with the former employer, but what they're hearing in their mind is, okay, so if I don't answer these questions and this person doesn't get the job, they're going to sue me for not answering the question, right? In other words, you can, you know, if somebody's scared about being sued, play into it. Um, so, so I would do that, but that would you rehire question. And if somebody's reluctant to answer, what I would tell them is, you understand that I'm asking a question about your future plans. That can't be defamatory. Okay. Um, okay, so if you get stuck there, you, you have some things you can do. But yeah, you know, I, I reassure them or, or give them the means to confirm that they're actually talking with you and not, not the applicant's sister. And uh, tell them that that's a safe question to answer. And furthermore, um, you know, tell them that if they don't answer it, it, it may result in this person not getting work. Just to, to re refresh people on something we talked about um, before when we talked about hiring. Um, a legitimate without malice conversation between a former employer and a prospective employer can almost never be defamatory. Okay, you would really have to work at it to make that into defamation. And a lot of states actually make that conversation what's called qualified, subject to qualified privilege. So it's, it's kind of in the same lines as a conversation you have with your attorney. It can't be compelled into court. So, it's normally, again, as long as it's without malice, it's normally safe to give truthful information. No, it is always safe to give truthful information about a former employee. And answering the question, would you rehire this person, can't be true or false. I mean, there's no, that that question is just not subject to a true-false test anyway. All right, well, guys, we are uh, probably a little longer than we hoped, but uh, Wendy's, Wendy's turtles were right on the money. We wanted to take some time today and, you know, give, kind of thorough answers to some fantastic questions. So we hope this was uh, valuable, informative, maybe even mildly entertaining for people. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Have a great night. Um, be safe, be well.
and we'll see you in a little over a month. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Dental Practice Owners Podcast, brought to you by Prosperident. You can contact Prosperident through its website, www.prosperident.com, or by calling 888-398-2327. If you have questions about this podcast, if you would like to discuss your practice, or there is a topic you would like to see in a future podcast, we would love to hear from you. Amber, Wendy, and David will be back soon with another episode.